We now, we now have uh, Bruce uh, Damer, all the way from California, uh, to give us a talk uh, on his on the work that he's been doing, and he's been doing a hell of a lot, so I can't go through all of these things. Uh, we already know quite a lot of what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's a pioneer in, in various places. He's working for NASA. He started off in biota stuff and all that kind of thing. And now he, he's now uh, down in London uh, teaching and uh, studying for his PhD in East London. Uh, there's the East Londoners on the east side of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, we might have a few tips. <laughs> right, so without any further ado, then, over to you. Bruce will talk for about an hour, an hour and a half, an hour and a half, something like that. Or when you get started, you can stop. Okay. This talk is about uh, artificial life in general, but also the, the evil great idea. If you want to know anything more about me or the projects, the Computer Museum, and the Avatar's work and whatnot, uh, it's all at damer.com. If you want to reach me, it's just bruce at damer.com. It's pretty easy. And I welcome any any contact. So this set, this little presentation is going to be introduce a number of things. Uh, what is biota, which is an organization? Uh, what is artificial life, which is a medium or a vision or a dream, if you will? Uh, what is the evil grid, which is a dream and a philosophy and maybe a cosmology? And then how would, if an evil grid ever came into being, how would it affect us as a civilization and affect us inside and our feelings of where we are in the universe? Um, biota was, I, I was climbing in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia, where, near where I lived, uh, or where I was raised as a child. I don't know if you can hear any abouts or house or A's, <laughs> but they're kind of, they're beaten out of me when I moved to the States. But when I go to Minnesota, they think I'm, they think I'm from Minnesota, so I hide. Um, so in Canada, uh, we have been blessed with a lot of uplift in the Rocky Mountains. And near where I grew up, there was there's a fossil deposit called the Burgess Shale. How many of you have heard of the Burgess Shale? And we'll talk a little bit more about it later. But I was literally hiking near the Burgess Shale. And it occurred to me, and I've been to artificial life conferences, and I met Chris Langton and later to meet Larry as well. And it occurred to me that the artificial life concept or dream certainly goes far back in history, back to alchemists and way back in time, the, the artificial being, the artificial human, uh, vivifying matter, to dead matter to life. It's an old, ancient, ancient concept. But it occurred to me that we needed a new conference on artificial life that was really all about the vision of where the thing's going, rather than about the research and the statistics and the algorithms, etc. And I looked across the mountains and I said, just behind this mountain is the Burgess Shale. And I thought, we should have a conference there at the fossil quarry. Because it will be very inspiring to people who have this dream about either trying to figure out where life came from uh, model early life, the origins of life, model life elsewhere, think about it, or uh, use software as a, a tool for biology and whatnot. It's very, very cross-disciplinary. And if I could get a group of people who are visionaries but different together, we could climb up to the Burgess Shale. It's only about 3,000 feet of hiking, very easy. Um, and as long as we don't come across a grizzly bear on the way, which we didn't, uh, if I could get this group together, we could form something new, which is a visionary movement around the artificial life idea. So we, we did that. 
uh, thanks to the Banff Center uh, in Banff, Alberta, we hosted a conference called Digital Burgess in 1997, and then three subsequent ones, which I'll go over briefly. But this is the actual Burgess Shale. Uh, it's quite accessible. Uh, you can only go up there with a permit, and you can only have 15 people at the shale at one time. Uh, we arranged with uh, Des Collins, who's the chief paleontologist at the shale, and his group to come up and be his guests uh, for a period of about two to three hours. And the Discovery Channel actually came with us, which was great because they captured this, this event. And the Burgess Shale, what, there's an interesting story behind it. The Burgess Shale is a phenomenally rare place on the planet. Uh, it is a shale which is usually made by deposition of, of matter on the ocean bottom that is then subsequently compressed very heavily and then subsequently heated. And for the most part, the paleontologists call this shake and bake, where the bake happens and then there's movement in the earth, there's subduction of, of continental crust and then maybe it, it gets pushed back up, there's a lot of shaking. So shales don't preserve much. They're, they're constantly shifting and, and heating. But in the case of the Burgess Shale, picture this. In roughly about 525 million years ago, North America was tilted on its side, if you can believe that. Um, and the, the coast it didn't have the Rocky Mountains. Uh, there were some original kind of granite cliffs that you would find in the Canadian Shield that probably are, 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 are gone or are deeply subducted. And those, there was a granite cliff coming up against the, the seashore. And just at the right angle, there was a little shelf as, as, this, as the seashore sort of curved into the continental landmass at that time. And on that shelf was a very nice, warm, beautiful environment for life. Now, this is life before life on land. This is sort of that period, a Cambrian period. And it was just at the right place so that there was enormous vitality in the life of those seas. None of it had, there was no bony structures at that time. So these are sort of soft, squishy things moving around. There was Otoia, there was uh, Anomalocaris with its 13 pairs of flaps and it's shrimp-like appendages. These things grew up to about three feet long or so, or even longer. And the trilobites, you, you, you see, if you go down to Lyme Regis, you know, find all those trilobite, trilobite uh, sort of stones in the stores and their fossils from that period or earlier. Trilobites ruled the world for 800 million years. They were, they're the record holders so far. They didn't survive the mass extinction of the Permian period. But, um, so this is rich environment and then uh, every once in a while, through s sort of subduction or slumping, a whole bunch of these creatures would be carried in a little submarine landslide and they would go off the edge of this cliff and they would settle down to a very great depth, probably over a thousand feet, straight down, black, inky water, anoxic, no oxygen, and they would die there. They would sort of be encased there and die there. And they wouldn't, their bodies wouldn't decompose. And these are very soft, think jellyfish, or horseshoe crabs. So layer upon layer upon layer of these creatures was laid down. And that wasn't enough. What you had to do then to preserve them, think of the challenge of preserving these very fragile things. So their, their bodies gradually get flattened out and they make impressions in the layer of mud underneath. But then this whole thing has to be pancaked down quite gently. And you can think of if you were trying to press down some cloths or something with butterflies in between. You wouldn't want to do this, you'd break them up. 
it, but you were compressing it down tremendously, I mean, probably 10 to 1 at least, to make the shales. And that happens as the entire thing is pushed down several kilometers under the Earth's surface. And the reason it compresses so cleanly and straight up and down is because of this granite face next to it. So the granite face provides, it's like a single press rather than doing this all away. So that granite face protects all of that. And then millions of years later, 525 million years later, uh, actually probably 510 million years later, all of this is uplifted into the Rocky Mountains. North America has turned from the equator, is now up this way, a piece of what, you know, we don't know, another piece of Earth's crust comes and crashes into North America and pushes all this material up, forms the Rocky Mountains. Then a, a, a spring day in 1905, a man named James Doolittle Walcott is on his horseback. He is the head of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. He is in the Rocky Mountains in, in Canada looking for fossils, but he's looking for specific kinds of fossils. Now this is really tremendous story. It's one of the legends of, of, of paleontology. He's, his horse is going along a trail just below here, trotting along, and his, his story, of it maybe it got embellished a little bit, was that a boulder suddenly rolled off of a bit of snow field, down, tumbled down, his horse stopped, the boulder flipped over just to the right side, and in the sunlight, Walcott could see these shiny slicks all over the boulder that were specific shiny slicks. And so he's one of five people who would understand what these little slicks are. He jumps off his horse and goes down and looks and says, oh my god, I found them. I found Cambrian creatures. I found the early creatures I've been looking for. So he trundles up to this lo location on the mountainside. It's quite steep. But these are you know, Victorian people, even Victorian Americans, big boots on them. And he finds them all over the place. He, finds, he, he takes his hammer and knocks them out. There's another. Oh, there's more. And takes another piece of shale and he's digging and he's trying to get at the face, you know, underneath the talus and he's finding they're everywhere. Every single little piece. It's an encyclopedia of, of creatures. It's a it's a mother log. And so in those years, 1905 and several field seasons, they, with horses, they pack out tons and tons and tons of these shale fragments back to the Smithsonian and put them in drawers and it takes. Uh, several generations for people to get to them, but they're so odd because there, there were creatures that he found where you could see the clear outlines of the creature. And I should have brought a little bit more detail. This is one that I, I broke open myself, and inside you see other little creatures that, that this one had consumed on its last meal, 525 million years ago. So we took a group up to this. This is, a, this is a great picture. I took this picture and really like it. Um, this is the archive of the Burgess Shale. This is Tom Ray, who created one of the first uh, simulated sort of biological systems that exhibited properties of, uh, I guess, mutation and uh, uh, parasitism. Yeah, quite well known in the field. This is Bez Collins. Now this man, he's the chief paleontologist for the Burgess Shale, and he's he's a detective, and he's a world maker. So the conversation they were having was quite interesting, but it actually merged at one point, and the conversation was that uh, Dev said, "Well, it's all coming. It all comes back to algorithms and software, you see, because we take the genetic code of the creatures we're finding here, and we do." 
we know how roughly how quickly these things have been evolving, so we take it back and we try to find out where the first thing was that was moving along the seafloor that actually could move. Or the first thing with mouths. And all these features probably were 600 or 700 million years ago were in the, in the biology, in the, the biota of the Earth, and it just took this long to branch out. And we, we're just seeing a slice where we find some of these things. And, and we're just lucky to find them. There's another site in China that, that is full of uh, soft-bodied Cambrian creatures. So we, we spent the next three days in the VAMP Center, and it's hard to see this, but this is Daryl Anderson with some of his glowing globule uh, bot uh, generations. This is some Carlson generative art. And we spent the next three days talking about the intersection between using software to simulate life forms and the, the, the practice of being a detective trying to figure out where life came from. It was just a tremendous meeting. I think you guys can attest. We went on to hold a second conference. This was sponsored by CyberLife and Steve Grand in Cambridge. We thought we'll go from the extant fossils of the uh, Canadian Rockies to the human living fossils of Cambridge. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Uh, but this was a wonderful event because originally digital herbs, both Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams were going to come and climb up the mountain. Sort of, for him it was sort of like Mecca in a way. And I had gone to see Stephen Jay Gould and he really wanted to come to the conference but his cancer was getting worse and worse and he said, I can't risk it. When Stephen Jay Gould went to the Burgess Shale, he started to walk down and he collapsed. His knees gave out. And that's like the worst thing that can, can happen to you because you're two, 3,000 feet from. So uh, Parks Canada's president was in Banff, heard about some guy that needed an airlift, and heard that his name was Stephen J. Gould and said, I want to be on that helicopter. So they, they came and they airlifted uh, Professor Gould off the mountain, and the Parks Canada person was thrilled to talk to him, and they didn't charge him for them. <laughs> but I actually, I actually uh, requested that all somewhat overweight, overweight paleontologists, computer scientists, or artists please walk treadmills for a while so you know you can do this hike. And during, at the end of the hike, I was literally helping our, one of our paleontologists get, as the sun was setting and people were waiting for the bus, I was helping them down the mountain. I went up and down three times trying to get everybody off the mountain because it would have been quite quite bad if we left somebody. Um, this is uh, Larry Ager who's sitting in the front row as a presenter, uh, Chris Langton. So we literally uh, got quite a group together. Uh, it, was, it was really a tremendous conference. Um, what's interesting, and I'll read an excerpt from the conference, was a speech made by Douglas at this event led Richard to go, the whole thing with the God illusion, and Richard's current work came from this event. And we actually posted Douglas's speech, it's called, Is There an Artificial God? And that caused uh, Richard Dawkins to start thinking in these terms. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. This was Digital Biota 3 in 1999. We decided to bring real hip firepower imagination to bear. This is Bruce Sterling and Rudy Rucker, and if you're a science fiction fan, both of these writers write about worlds where there are human-created technological beings that reproduces another biology. And that's that's one of their favorite themes of science fiction. So these people, in their minds, are already living in a future where there are 
there is artificial life. This is some of our sketches saying, could we build some kind of an ego drip? This is a long time ago, but where the web was new. And the last uh, conference that we held, which was, conferences are hard to organize and expensive and whatnot, and um, I kind of ran out of steam to do them, and we'll see what we did with them later. Uh, Roy Plotnick here, uh, who's a highly regarded paleontologist in Chicago, organized our session at the Paleontological Convention. So we actually held this thing inside where the, the paleo people were. And it was interesting. It was quite controversial to them because they're detectives. They're not world thinkers. So it was, how can we help you with this tool to help what you do? And one of the things that, that a paleontologist came up with, they said trace fossils. And I didn't know what a trace fossil was. A trace fossil is sort of a disturbance in the mud left by a creature. Um, usually, you'll find trace fossils that are much older than any fossilized creature. So they're quite interesting. They're, the little ghostly marks of where something's been, but it could be 650 million years old in sediments. And they said, can you help us reconstruct what creature could have made this mark? So that is an interesting application of, of virtual worlds. Biota went on to do, one of the things that I always wanted to do in the organization was to do projects. And we did, the first project we did was called Nerve Garden, and it was a growing L-system forest that was grown in front of the public, by the public, who extruded, extruded their own L-system plants and then put them on these islands at the SIGGRAPH conference in Los Angeles. It was a tremendously fun thing. So the idea was to get the public involved in creating a simulated, biologically inspired world. We morphed the organization, and you're all most welcome, if you like this kind of discussion, please come to the site, because we have a podcast, and that means audio, a tremendous amount of audio. There's audio of all the speakers of the original conference, conferences, plus interviews and a weekly radio program that you can call into and be part of, as Justin's been several times. So that is what Biota has, has morphed into today, is this channel. Of, of communication about this idea. What is artificial life? Well, believe it or not, I'm, I'm, I'm digging around trying to find the origins of this idea in, in software and in computers, and I'm for the next couple of years, I have a visitor's appointment at a place called the Institute for Advanced Studies. It's in Princeton. It's not the university, but it's next to the university. And I was reading around in the histories of the, the Institute, and the Institute's famous for many things. But one of the things it's most famous for is really the invention of the modern computer, because that is where von Neumann uh, was after World War II to build the von Neumann computer architecture. And for you computer history buffs, I mean, I, I'm a real history buff. I have a big collection of old computers. This guy, von Neumann, goes into an institute where there's never been a laboratory. They don't do this kind of thing. It's all about study. There's a department of there's econ economists and mathematicians and everything. They purposely, there's no discipline which needs a laboratory. They have no students. It's all about study. And he sets up, with, without really full permission, he sets up this workshop and, to build this vacuum tube machine using the, the highest technology of the day to create the best computer architecture for the world. And the IAS are going, oh, dear, you know. They're at it again. At least the building was somewhat far. It's where the kindergarten is. The play school is right there. And 
oh dear, what are they doing? There's all this banging going on, disturbing our stuff. But over a period of three years, von Neumann, what he did, and we owe, we owe the modern world to him, he made the first modern computer which had registers and memory and buses, and he designed all that, and every quarter he published reports about it. He gave the reports away, sent them to any institution that would want them. It's an open source idea, take it. And everybody who was at UCLA or Harvard or whatever, in the UK, people are trying to create a computer for their institution, kept getting these reports which were so far ahead in thinking of anything that they were doing internally that they just said, just copy this. This guy's obviously ahead of us. Why reinvent? This is the better wheel. And that's why you have the von Neumann architecture now. That's why you have all these computers that pretty much work the same. It came out of but in the 1948-49, there was a fellow named Boricelli, or Boricelli, at IAS, and he was waiting for the von Neumann machine to be ready and done, because he had an idea of the first big scientific application for it, and it was artificial life. He called it numerical symbioorganisms, and you can imagine on a machine with so, it was actually a very good performing machine, but with so limited capacity, he put these strings, very much like Tierra, ran them, ran replication algorithms and whatnot. So I was fascinated by this. And it took up everything that the, the IIS machine could throw at it. And it worked. And there were reports about it and whatnot. But it really was the first scientific computing application was an artificial life application on the first computer of the modern age. Interesting history. Later on, all of this was sort of rediscovered several times. There was or redone, there's Conway's Game of Life from the 1960s, which were patterns on the uh, sort of cells and adjacent cells and patterns to be observed. Very popular game into the 70s on microcomputers. In the 80s, Chris Langton was fiddling around with uh, Apple II software and several other people. There's a, a history is too, too long to describe, but an institute was founded. This is the Santa Fe Institute up on the hilltop, eventually up on the hilltop in Santa Fe, and, and this thinking all coalesced, and uh, tremendous things came out of that period, very productive period. What I want to do now is to show you, what you're going to see is is uh, one of the things that, that I saw that really convinced me there was something here. And this is work done by Carl Sims in the late 80s and early 90s on the connection machine. And uh, the connection machine was this, I don't know if many of you remember, it was this black cube, about this, this high, this wide, that had, I think, up to 2,000 processors in it, very small processors, massively parallel machine. It was built by a company called Thinking Machines, it's a great name, especially for that time when there was a lot of interest in artificial intelligence. Danny Hillis formed the company, hired this young guy, I guess he was at MIT at the time, called Carl Sims, and said, to Carl, do something interesting with this that shows why you need such a powerful parallel machine. And, uh, Danny had been in a biologist. I guess he'd been trained part of his career as a biologist. He was interested in biological simulations. But these creatures are the result of an astounding new idea that may soon take us from there. And this, this program was produced around 1994. Uh, Scientific American Frontiers, and, and I'll explain kind of what you're looking at a little bit more, but this is a very good, very good short piece. So what, what you'll see in what Carl Sims did was 
he took these 2,000 processors, and the idea was, what can you do with them? What can you do with them that you can't do with just a single processor box? And he was thinking, because Danny Hillis is a biologist, he was thinking, all right, I've got to think of something biological. And then he thought, why don't we see if we can make simulated evolution? Because we can then have an individual creature, uh, simulated creature using an individual processor. And in, 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 in use them up. This actually turns out to be an inter interesting theme later. And so we'll create a very, very simple genome. And what he does is he starts out with, says, well, I, I don't want something that's all numbers, like Tierra or like the symbiote organisms of Belt Boricelli. I want something that's very visual. So I'm going to create a little physics world. The creatures are going to be made out of blocks. And I'll start with a hinged block creature. And I'll see if somehow the way the creature reproduces its, its limbs and changes the shape of it, that it can interact with simulated fluid. So a two-hinged box don't do too much in, in fluid, but when you get a third one, you get kind of a tail-whipping effect. So he said, if I can only get this creature to have a genome that will, for some of the creatures, generate a third block, which will give it a tail motion, I'll get, mo I'll get motion. Then I should be able to set up those, those creatures in a biological simulation. And, and he did it, and it worked. And literally, in a period of weeks, he, he not only had creatures sort of swimming through water and evolving different strategies. There were ones that had four paddles uh, after, after thousands and thousands of generations. There were ones that moved like a snake. But then he turned gravity on, and they all fell to the ground, or at least the initial, the best swimmers. And then they couldn't, with gravity, they couldn't deal with it. But with this same kind of culling algorithm, gradually the, the now fish out of water became better at walking. And there were even contests where, where he would have the, the creatures try to get at a green block. So they would start from one position, they would move around and get to the green block, get control of it. And if one got control of the block, it would reproduce. And so over time, there was incredible strategies. One, one creature would come around with this arm and then pull the block toward it and move it away like a crab. There were other creatures that would, and the winner, actually the speed king, and you see this in, in, in university courses, engineering courses, where they have the robots come and try and get as many ping pong balls as possible, competing with another student team's robots. The winner of all was this creature that just simply put this paddle out of this, this block and slammed it down on the cube, and it didn't matter what anything else did, they couldn't get control of the block. And that was the all-time winner after many generations. So you'll see some of this in the movie. But whenever I, whenever I show this, it really communicates to the public what this is about. It's very, very anthropomorphic, if you will. People are rooting for these creatures. Robots like Flaky must be programmed feature by feature. But not these strange things. They created themselves through a process called artificial evolution. Evolution by itself has led to the creation of incredible complexity. Ourselves, all the organisms in the world. This process happens on its own. At least in my opinion. There's nobody that assembles all of these wonderful things in the world. On computers, we can simulate the same process, and we can get these very complicated, very interesting things 
without having to understand them and assemble them. When he first dreamed up this evolution idea, Carl Sims couldn't predict what would happen. He just gave his computer some basic parts and let his creatures go from there. The bodies of these creatures are fairly simple. They're just made of some number of blocks. The blocks are connected by joints, which can bend or twist. The creatures also have a nervous system. They have sensors, which can sense the angle of the joints or sense contact. And the nervous system processes the signals from the sensors and tells the muscles when to move, which generates some kind of behavior. I've given it the capabilities to include all of these elements, but the computer actually decides how they're assembled and how they're used in specific creatures. Numbers chosen randomly by the computer, the synthetic genetic code, described how the first simple creature would look and how its nervous system would be wired. Then it was put into a simulated lake and told to swim. It twitched, but it didn't get anywhere. So now the computer went to work. Using the original numbers as its base, the computer made a few random changes, the equivalent of mutations. It did this again and again, creating a new generation of 300 different offspring. Then all the offspring got a swimming test, with the best swimmers selected as the basis for the next generation. When the computer makes mutations in the genes of these creatures, it has no idea what these mutations are going to do. Sometimes the mutations might knock out a piece of the nervous system and perhaps cause the muscles not, not to move anymore. But other mutations might actually improve the motion. So from the original creature, increasingly better swimmers evolved over generations, all without any human intervention. was that 
you could, through this really relatively simple culling algorithm, what's happening is this, this genome, which is what's called a directed graph, and what it's doing is it's cutting out and putting in and cutting out and putting in, and then you're taking all these variants so that the little directed graph is now more, and the directed graph creates a different creature, but a slight variation on, on the creature. And then you're putting it into the test, swimming, walking, competing for food, following a cursor. And then that test is automatically picking the next creature, which is then morphed again. And on a connection machine, it would only take them a few days to, to come up with all these forms. And what was interesting was I, well, I was at the Santa Fe Institute in 1994, and they were just getting the Mosaic web browser working in Chris Langton's lab. And I saw, I saw the, uh, uh, the first, one of the first websites they went to was Carl Sims' website. So I saw this strange thing, and it was actually, they were playing with the fossil records of Carl Sims' creatures, because it was only MPEG files. And by that time, Thinking Machines was close to being out of business. And so the, 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 there would be no more big black cubes, maybe a few of them running. If anyone sees one on the street, call me up, because I want one for my computer collection. But that, that machine was going, was going away. And so on the web came these, these MPEG files that people were playing on a web browser. And that was a fossil. I realized I'm not watching a live thing going on. I'm watching a fossil. But that fossil was so inspiring that I got in touch with Carl Sims as Thinking Machines was closing its doors and said, can I like take these out? I, I, I can break into Thinking Machines' website, and I can get these MPEG files out. Can I rehost them for another generation? He said, sure, you know, I can't do anything. You know, the company's going out of business in Chapter 11 bankruptcy or something. So I busted into Thinking Machines, took out the fossils, and built a website uh, to show this, because this is just too important not to preserve. And that actually did lead, eventually, a, because otherwise that would have been lost. You would have seen a, a SIGGRAPH paper with a, a, an image. Those MPEG files were what was needed to, to keep a new generation inspired. And so we did that, and that was one of the first projects we did with, with Biota. And then Carl Sims came to the Digital Awareness Conference. I'm going to turn the sound off since we don't need it. So Carl Sims, that was an early example. Larry Ager created Polyworld. What, what year was, was Polyworld? About 1990 to 92. 1992 on silicon silicon graphics machine. And Polyworld, give us a brief description of Polyworld. The main thing that evolves in Polyworld, unlike Carl's, uh, uh, where the body morphology and the sort of embedded control structures are what evolve, I tried to make mine based on our best understanding of simple neural models, and so. They are uh, summing and squashing neurons that do heavy in learning at the synapses. And the main thing that evolves is the wiring diagram of their little brains, the neural architectures. And then they have to survive and reproduce in an ecology. So in Polyworld, you open source Polyworld yes. some years ago? Yes, source storage. So Polyworld is a living fossil. And several people, I think, have taken it and are taking it further. What I was going to show you is that there's a whole new boom in artificial life. In the, by the late 90s, there had been a hype, as the media often does, they hype the field up. And they had hyped up the artificial life field. And Chris Langton, toward the end of the 90s, I got him involved in avatar worlds. 
when I went when I went to the Santa Fe Institute in 1994, I was bubbling up with this possibility that there would one day be Avatar Worlds on the net, and and it was great pride that I got him addicted to this two years later. He was in Active Worlds as an avatar talking about motorcycles, you know, five hours a day. Didn't contribute to his career much. But what I wanted what I wanted him to see was that the virtual world space represented by what is now, say, Second Life, uh, could be a space where you could do artificial life experiments. I've since come to the conclusion that's not the case for a number of reasons. But in the late 90s and into the 2000s, there was a whole new generation of people, some of whom found Carl Sims' MPEG movies that you just saw. They started their own little artificial life projects. One of them was Tom Barbelay in Australia. They generally work in a garret alone, building. And these are mostly men, because women can already reproduce and create life. No. As Gail and my wife was sitting right over here, these vanished. Oh, there she, she said, "Why are you so? Why are you so infatuated with this? We women know that life is created one peanut butter sandwich at a time." <laughs> so, anyway, so that, what happened was there was this bubbling up of enthusiasm with artificial life, and I thought, before the same thing happens to these folks that happened before. We can use a new tool for them. And the new tool is called the internet. Because the first generation of artificial life really didn't use it that much. Uh, because you needed quite powerful machines to, to make these things work, from connection machines to silicon graphics. And there was only a rudimentary use of the internet in, say, Tierra. But these guys were growing up in the era of Web 2.0 and Ajax and social networks and all this sort of stuff. Everything's interconnected. So about a year ago, I came up with this thought of uh, sort of a vision of a there's a simulated forest growth world that's being built in, in uh, University of Paris. It's called Darwin's Park. And it's kind of, what's great is it's sort of like where we left off with Nerve Garden, where you saw people growing those plants and sticking them in the islands. Darwin's Park is like the full-on plant simulator. It, plants can shade other plants that then grow differently. Underneath the soil, the roots are moving along pathways of minerals and, and water that's simulated under the soil. And they're actually going to be using this for real agricultural productivity studies. It's, it's, it's really cool. And one of the comments of Claude Latode, who, who created this thing, was, gee, we'd like to have some creatures in here because plants interact with insects a lot of the time, leaf cutter ants and things like that. And that's really part of, of, of agricultural productivity. And, but we don't have the resources to do ants. Because we're not into We don't do ants. And then there's this fellow. Uh, uh, Brian in in uh, Boston in the Great Thumb Group who does have an ant simulator. Is it Brian or is it Adam? Brian. Okay. Brian. And it occurred to me that well, what if what if Brian's ants could somehow be packaged up in XML and a little capsule and they could wander through the semantic uh, web and pop up into Claude's uh, forest world, and they would be sort of think of the Matrix, you know, when they're going that funny glowing craft and then the robotic world, but the humans are preserved and they're going to alien environments and they go other places. The ants are arriving. Now, of course, the ants arrive in closed plant world and there's no gravity. So they go poof out, out of their their XML capsule and then they're floating and they're saying, we're ants, we need gravity, give us gravity. So closed team would have to code in gravity and the ants would drop to the ground and then they're moving along and then closed team would very quickly say, well, they they uh, need to interact with the plants. They need to know the difference between the geometry that's a leaf of a plant or the ground, because they want to dig in the ground, but they want to cut the 
the leaves on the plants. So we have to create all these what are called affordances or APIs between ants and plants. But this would really inspire both Brian and his ant simulation because some there would be a user of the simulation that would inspire the plant people saying, we just got something better than the sum of the parts. We can go to our funders and get more, more grants. We might be able to hire Brian to extend his ant simulation. And this is called the grid effect. And this is what dominates uh, big computing now. It, artificial life, World of Warcraft, whatever. Google, it's all on grids of machines that are communicating and cooperating. Uh, the supercomputing projects, everything. So my mission was to bring the grid to artificial life and see what happens. And so this is actually an idea that seems to have gotten, and I can't write it. I haven't written a line of code in 15 years or so. I don't know if you have the same problem. <laughs> you're still doing it? Oh, you're lucky God. Um, it's so creative. Uh, so bring the grid to artificial life. And when you, th when you think of it as it expands, you know the network effect. The network effect is if you have one fax machine, it's worth nothing. If you have two, they're kind of useful. But if you have two million, they're really useful. Um, and so the, the whole goal would be to have all kinds of artificial life simulators that are sending objects back and forth. Now, some of it will become really nonsensical because some of the simulators are kind of, they're purely numerical. Some of the simulators have a 3D geometry and physics. Some of them are like for fishes and others are for, for plants and, and structures. So in the beginning, it will be kind of a hodgepodge. But I think a combination of you know, these things arriving in your world and not knowing what to do with them. And there will be something that's beyond the, what the programmers can conceive, which is there will be all of these autonomous lights out interactions that will go on because objects will arrive in your world and they'll cause all this bizarre chaos. You might come and find your entire planet world is mowed down <laughs> by something that came through. And this thing that is mowing plants down is now going into other artificial life simulations and it's interacting and doing other crazy things. And then the plant simulations, because it's a feedback loop, because there's a genome, because there is an energy cost equation, the next time the thing comes in the plant world, it's harder for it to mow them all down. Either they're growing really quickly. They, the plants learn that if they grow ultra fast, they lower the frame rate so much that the, the creature moves on. But you'll see all these bizarre effects happening that aren't programmed by anybody which is what we learned from Carl Sims here, but on a mass effect, a scale all over the net. Uh, so that would be pretty cool. The, one, the problem, of course, with all that is it's, it's really, the environments are quite different. So somebody's paramecium simulation is at the wrong scale for the plant simulation. And there's one other issue with it is it will create all these really interested in emergent properties but does it tell us anything about the origin of life or biology? And a biologist might say, all very interesting. It's a simulacrum or it's a, a facsimile of what we see in nature, but it isn't nature. It tells us more about the cleverness of the programmers and the strangeness of mass effects and emergence in, in software networks than it does about life on Earth or a future of life. So in order to, to go deeper, the, the EvoGrid, so I, I realized about four months ago that the EvoGrid project really has two, two flavors, if you will, two flavors of EvoGrid ice cream. One is broad, where connect any simulator to any other simulator and hurl things back and forth and see what happens. 
And that's a broad thing, and that might teach us some lessons, but there's a deep version. And the deep version came out of a, uh, I'm co writing a book chapter for a, a large book that's coming out in October. It's called something like Divine Intervention uh, Natural Action. And it's 30 authors, look for it from World Scientific Press, 30 authors, including the a cardinal from Rome, uh, two rabbis, uh, the head of the Vatican Observatory, an evangelical thing, several evangelical thinkers, biologists, sociologists, philosophers, and I'm the only nerd in there. So I write about artificial life. The chapter that I wrote, and it took me months to write this chapter, to write about 10 pages. It just, I kept getting into these logical loops. Because my thesis was, if you, if you make the strong claim that God is an intelligent designer, therefore God is has a design for the universe and is always tweaking and poking things along the way to make them happen, then God has to be observable. You should be able to either find a God detector in nature or build a God detector. So the chapter is called The God Detector. And what's if, if, you'll, if you'll permit me, now that I'm not burdened with any individuals, uh, the God Detector idea, it's a little bit of a joke, but it, go, it comes down to this. If you actually whittle the universe down into its basic components, no, not that I could do this, but it just sort of seems common sense. It seems like there's natural laws, and it seems like there's randomness that can't be can't be modeled. It's just Murphy's law, or it's random numbers, or it's Brownian motion, or something. That's one of the things that feeds the universe. But there's a third thing, and it's copying. And you live in the copying universe. Everything in this room. Uh, that isn't sort of made by natural laws and whatnot is, is a made is a copy of something made from a blueprint. These chairs, the words I'm speaking, the culture, language are copied from brain to brain. So we learn our language and we read things. Uh, the cells in your body, the cells and the wood and these walls. It's all a result of copying. And for some wonderful reason, our universe, with the parameters that it has, in little tiny areas of the universe, just like the little tiny areas of the Burgess Shale that were preserved, copying is permitted. Because certainly inside the sun, there's no copying. It's just complete you know, thermodynamic chaos. You, you can't observe copying many places. We, can't, we haven't found anything copying itself on Mars yet. Rocks don't copy rocks from a blueprint and make another rock with slight variations. So, Copying is rare. So if, if God was was tinkering with the mechanism of the universe on an ongoing basis, God wouldn't really be interested in Mars at the moment because it's just there's just a bunch of rocks. It's not interesting for a God. No one to talk to, no one to believe in you. Um, so God would only be kind of involved in the universe where there was copying going on, which is where we are right now, where, where organisms are. So then you say, all right, if, if God can actually affect natural laws and doesn't isn't interested in those regions, God certainly can affect random. Random is, defeats every, everything. Otherwise, it wouldn't be random. It would be a natural law. Then God has to affect the copying process. And in this chapter, I'll, I'll save the suspense. You'll have to buy this book. I'm supposed to be promoting it for World Scientific, but it's God could affect copying before it starts with the inputs, during the copying process, or on the output side. And what I, show, what I show in this book is that for God to predictively know exactly how to affect copying, i.e. change the random for random mutations, God's brain would have to be 
bigger than all the, par the, the countable particles in the universe. Therefore, God couldn't exist inside the universe. It would have to be outside. Therefore, God is omnipotent and outside the universe, and there's no debates. Right, that's the end of the debate. Maybe I'll not write a book like that. But what I showed, I think, in the chapter was that God probably can't affect the individual copying that's going on because you can't do enough predictive calculations to make it happen just right every time. But on the output side, where there's like an error, God could be there adapting to the results of the copy. So the example I gave was when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, they made a copying error, which was very significant. They, the Greek translators changed the word for young girl in Hebrew to virgin in Greek. And probably there were several copies of those texts that were just, that were that were translated. Maybe there were ones not translated quite the same way. But it turns out that in the Eastern Mediterranean there were a whole religious tradition of virgin births. It wasn't in the Hebrew, but it's now in the Greek. And probably the chief scribe monk said, hey, it's a good idea. You know, it'll help us be more acceptable because we're a struggling young movement. And so it stayed in and it had a profound change on, on Christianity. It, it, there's evidence that in the early Gnostic Christian church, women were pretty much kept, they were equal. They, were, they had equal roles. And that change, that was certainly, that one change uh, shifted, made monastic, you know, uh, celibate monks, it made nunneries, it made, it actually probably push women's role right out of the church uh, was one of the contributing factors. So these mutations within scripts certainly have a powerful impact. But if you say, well, then God was affecting the monk's decisions to keep the uh, errors in, it comes back to this uncountability problem again, because then the, then the uh, God would have to know all of the brain, neural brain patterns and affect all the neurons to go to the chief monk's brain and say, uh, that's a good idea, keep that. And again, it becomes an implausible thing. So perhaps that God is an intelligent adapter, not an intelligent designer. Therefore, God is no different than natural selection or our intelligence, which does adaptation when things don't go quite the way we want, we adapt. So that's that's this particular book. Uh, I hope I hope you like it if you, if you get a copy, but I'll have the, my chapter posted online. But that's a little bit of a diversion. The fundamental question is, what is artificial life about? What, what can it do for humanity? What can it do for science or for philosophy? If, if for instance, in the one of the things in the artificial life community is people who believe in creation, creationists and intelligent design look at artificial life and say, see, people are making those algorithms. People are intelligent, therefore God, by tweaking and making the algorithms, is also an intelligent designer. So that's the big, the, the big debate. But I would, I would suggest that there's something more fundamental. That none of that mat matters at all because it's just creative programming. It's clever programming. What matters is something deeper, which is, can you, could you start at what what Richard Gordon calls the origin of artificial life? So origin of life we think of as there's the earth, there's the oceans, and there's no life in it. And suddenly, or over a long period of time, small vacuoles that may be forming naturally in the water, or maybe at the waves at the seashore, these vacuoles, you can actually study these as, they, as, as oceans, uh, water waves break on the shore, they form these little, I think they're bilipid vacuoles or something. One of the theories of the origins of life is these little vessels are forming and being broken up, forming and being broken up constantly. 
what if one of them formed around a bunch of cellular machinery? And that cellular machinery was, was good enough that it just at the right time patching a hole in the wall of the vessel so that it didn't get broken up. That wouldn't be enough for life because now you've got this vessel floating around with a little piece of cellular machinery which is constantly sending out repair mechanisms. Keep this balloon together. You know, don't let the balloon break. Don't let, and then ultimately it breaks. But what if eventually there's a longer string that is really able to keep the balloon intact for long periods of time? Well, for a cell, we know that every cell in your body is a balloon full of seawater, pretty much, and it's got mechanisms to keep to keep the membrane from being disturbed, and actually for all kinds of nasty things coming in through the membrane too. It's very complex. That's your your field, Rachel. But the jump between that that little vacuole which may have existed and the little repair mechanism and this thing called the eukaryotic or prokaryotic cell, which is an amazingly huge machine. It's a machine that you can't model it with a supercomputer. It's so, there's so much going on inside there. And it's got a blueprint that it's working off. It's got factories making proteins. It's got things making energy. It's a whole city in there. It's a, it's a, it's a refinery complex. And its whole job is much more grand than the original vacuole. It, it not only maintains the cell wall, it maintains what could come in and what can come out. It generates energy. It could move. It, it does the most miraculous thing in that it one day decides, I'm going to make a copy of the, the, the blueprints, and then I'm going to pucker the wall in. I'm going to split off the blueprints and all the elements and make two of me. And it's that jump, probably, that was where life came from. So my question challenge for the artificial life community is, do an or origin of artificial life experiment. And this came from Richard Gordon's chapter in the same book that's coming out in October. What if you started with a soup, huge particle simulator, basic physics, and you ran millions of computers onto this soup, and the soup really could be a mathematical analog of the chemistry of the oceans or something. It wouldn't be, a, it wouldn't be an attempt to simulate that chemistry. It would be impossible to do. But it was a mathematical analog. So some of the particles attract. Some of them, they're all affected by sort of disturbances through the medium which come every once in a while in some way. Uh, some of the particles bond in certain ways so you can be mathematically like properties in chemistry. And if you ran and ran and ran this, would you get, would you get molecules that were, would copy each other? Probably. This has been seen before. You can do it in, in raw bathtub chemistry. You can do that. Could you get vacuoles that would form that you understand are containing other, other particles? Possibly, but could you go that final step of the machinery of the preservation of the vacuole, the making of, of things from blueprints, and the reproduction of those bubbles? And I, I posit that that would be a more interesting challenge than anything, one, many of the things you could do in this century, and maybe that computing itself is, is, came upon our species uh, so we could do a grand experiment like this. Before he died, Douglas Adams did this, this tremendous speech at Digital Biota 2. He died of a heart attack, I think, in 99 or, or 2000, shortly after the conference, which was a real loss. But uh, he, he talked about, this, this speech was an artificial god, and he talked about that computers are tools to understand the whole universe and to simulate the universe and to simulate life in the universe and so we can understand where we come from. 
So what more noble goal to say to a computing grid or a community, let's try to see if we can, in an abstract way, in principle show how from nothing, our abstract mathematical nothing, something comes. Now, when you, when you get duplicating, duplicating bubbles with complex machinery inside, what do we have, what responsibility do we have as a species? Say that started to happen. Say it was like SETI at home. How many of you ran SETI at home? SETI at home was this, this great environment where I think it was all based on Arecibo telescope data, but they would be scanning the skies for signals and you're, you would log on and, and install a screensaver. And the screensaver would simply go out and grab a chunk of the data from the SETI at home server and pull it in and look for patterns and report back. And so there were probably about two, three million machines in SETI at home. This is about 10 years ago, and it's the model for these distributed grids. But what if you had a biota or a, you know, whatever your evil grid um, set up like SETI at home? Well, your little computer at home would be going out and grabbing a frame of the particle soup, pulling it in, and running the math for the frame, and then replacing the frame and that the next frame was being run by somebody else. And nothing could happen until all the frames are put back into the simulation. And suddenly the clock goes. And everyone else can now go grab a new frame. And we know with computing architectures it's possible to, to do this. And the, the prize would be that in your, in your computer at home, the first evil grid authentic reproducible machine in the container object would up here, and then a light would flash. Uh, light would flash, well, the flashes, you're the winner. You know, you, after all this 10 years of computing, or two weeks of computing, you're the machine that did the thing. I mean, you didn't do anything, really, just left your machine on overnight. But that would be an interesting outcome. One, one of, then they could, if, if that happened, they will stop the simulation, we're gonna go and probe this, because no one's watching this, no one's manipulating this. You might run it for a few more frames because if, the, if that thing didn't persist, it didn't pass the test. It has to persist. That line of things has to persist. Every ancestor that you possess back to 4 billion years, 3.8 billion years, uh, survived. So the smallest uh, single-celled organism to the swimming uh, notochord thingamajig in the Burgess Shale, they're all your ancestors. They all lived and, 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 and reproduced. They belong to you. So you have to actually have continuity in these evil grid objects. So if you run it a few more cycles, and it's very much like how they do prize competitions, where you can break the sound barrier in thrust two on the Nevada desert. You have to go through it, and you have to hear the sonic boom, but you have to turn around and go through it again in case the wind did something. So there's always like well, three flights or two flights of spaceship one in two weeks. You know, test it again, test it again, and then suddenly the world knows that. This test has been passed. Well, what does it mean? Um, it means that our species will actually have a whole lot of questions to ask. And you're probably, some of you in the audience are better prepared to ask these questions. But if in principle we've shown that life can emerge from non-life, it's a big moment, a very big moment. Now, this is only in a simulator, right? Well, how different is a simulator from matter? If you read Seth Lloyd's book, Programming the Universe, which is a great book, he's a quantum computing guy at MIT, he says, look, you know, at the quantum level, forget about atoms and hard bodies and suns and stars, it's just a quantum qubit information grid. 
So the quantum qubit information grid is underneath everything. And it doesn't, there's no particular pattern that would show you you're inside of a star, maybe, versus inside of a human heart. It's the same kind of stuff that's going on. It's this furious algorithms are running. This is his theory about the universe. So if, that, if you put, took your, your quantum bit microscope and pointed it over your finger, you'd see a bunch of quantum bits. And if you pointed it over a star or what you thought was a vacuum of space with nothing in it, you'd see a bunch of, whole bunch of activity. And if you pointed it over a computer running an Evo grid simulation, you'd see a bunch of furious activity. There's no difference at that level at all. The algorithm, the activity would be slightly different because the algorithms are executing different things, but there really isn't a difference. So at that level, is the evil grid creature alive really? Is it, is it an origin of life event as far as at the quantum level? Now, we know we could pull the plugs out of the server and it's all over with. We might get, you know, it might have been classified as an endangered species, so we'd be in a lot of trouble uh, by that point. So that's one level, one layer to ask. There's another really interesting philosophical question. If you step back even further and you say, well, our species with 10 digits, you know, here's the early Earth, anomalous carousel swimming through the oceans, and you've got trilobites, and it's a happy world. And in comes an asteroid right from the South Pole, slamming, it was a big one, it's 20 kilometers probably. I know this because I work with asteroid people who are trying to save the Earth from asteroids, Rusty Schweikart. We're doing a project showing how a spacecraft orbiting along the front of it can gradually change its orbit over several years. A robotic spacecraft. We're just we got to deliver this on Tuesday, so this is in my head. So these asteroids come in. The Permian extinction blasted Antarctica. Huge amount of debris. The trilobites, these things from Lyme Regis that you see, all extinct. Can you imagine the power of that of that impact? Because it pretty much must have boiled the oceans off to get those guys. They're all living in the ocean bottom, so they're all gone. Uh, dinosaurs, 65 million years ago, impact in Mexico, what is now Mexico. Dinosaurs are gone, mammals are there. What, as, each, as, that, as each event occurs, you get more sophisticated beings that can survive that and come back. Dinosaurs were a certain mentality, perhaps they would never have developed technology. Well, mammals did. You know, we may have an impactor coming yet if, if nature decides, ah, oh, these buggers aren't going to do the job. Let's try the last time with cockroaches or something. <laughs> but you might consider that if there was a sort of overall weird Gaian logic to all this, what is the purpose of having a biosphere? What is the purpose of life filling up a biosphere and trying all these experiments? Evolutionary experiments, survival from catastrophe, fill all the niches, create a super species like us that kills all, a lot of other species and changes the atmosphere. You know, we're all part of something, and is it that we're part of life trying to continue beyond the single bubble that is the Earth? The single bubble there, and it's pretty fragile, and it has a short lifespan. They, they think now that we have about 500 million years left before it's too hot for, uh, life, uh, for plant life on land, and that's not global warming. It says that the sun's temperature has been going up very constantly. It's a very stable star, but it's getting hotter and hotter. And after 500 million years, the whole land masses will be deserts, baking deserts. So everything's back to just ocean for large things. And then something like 2 billion years from now or 3 billion years, the oceans start to boil away. And then you, you, you don't have any chance. Because then you've got bacteria living in the crust until the sun gobbles up the earth and the sun turns into a giant, a red giant. So the, these little bubbles have a limited lifespan. 
So the bubble, the whole bubble wants to reproduce, just like the little the cell or the bubble in the ocean. What has it got to do? What has it got to do to mitose? It's got to create some kind of giant, uh, giant blueprint, a giant copying mechanism, and a way to do the copying, and then a way to create another biosphere. And if you read, uh, I think it's Dorian Sagan's writings, uh, He's got a book called Biospheres about that. But I propose a very wild and weird theory that human beings are a massive copying mechanism. We really do it well. We sell a lot of Big Macs and we do a lot of financial bubbles. You know, we're good at those. Destroy our mortgage market and then we'll do it and destroy the stock market. We're really good bubble makers. Uh, we're good at information. We're good at copying. We copy ourselves. We copy our information. We're really good at it. We're trying to extend our lives so we can persist more into the future, the, the, the blueprint, if you will, that has emerged that is new from bio, that isn't biology, is technology. Giant blueprint. The internet is here, it sucks up every last brain cell we have. It sucks all our time, right? Is there, is there something going on here? Email, four hours a day, six hours a day, World of Warcraft, we, texting, our brains are being sucked into this giant, copying mechanism, at least a, a, social a socio-economic, cultural copying mechanism. If, if the Earth as a whole was saying, I got to get this job done, I got to make another Earth somehow, or I got to make another form of life, we're a pretty powerful tool to do it. We're a pretty unreliable <coughs> tool. But we may be evolved, we may, be, we may exist to do this job. And this is kind of an odd theory, but how would this work? Well, the the Earth copying or the Gaian copying mechanism figured out, okay, they got 10 fingers. We gave them 10 fingers, gives them a good numbering system. They're crazy about making money, so they're going to be into information copying numbers down. They're numbers creatures. They're, they've got binocular vision, so they see depth. Let's see, what are the other properties? Uh, they have short lifespan, so they work furiously. They don't, they don't take it easy. Uh, they got mortgages to pay, so they're really going to, they're going to stay at the job. And they're furious about making tech. They're, they're fascinated with tools. And they're mesmerized by 3D environments and by visuals. So the natural thing is for them to invent an, an information mechanism that's very visual to suck them into World of Warcraft, Second Life, whatnot, internet, and use every brain cycle you can. And perhaps the mechanism's probing around saying, OK, I created you, the copying mechanism. I created the copying matrix. Now, figure out how to do copying and copy this civilization. So it'd be like a, you could wear a t-shirt saying copying, copy this planet or copy this biota. Um, and that some odd version of humanity decides to tackle this origin of life problem using computer software and manages to show that computer software can show that you could have life arise from, from non-life. Well, there's sort of a, I'm just sort of working out this, my head as I'm going here. You can, you can probably help me. If life sort of, if life is at all aware and conscious, which we can never know, life, the life that you might call God, the, the intelligent adapter might say, bonkers, they did it. They figured out that they can create life from nothing. Let's go a little bit further. Let's pour all our energy into the thing that they just did. They're going to be fascinated by it. They're going to put it in video games. They're going to do, et cetera. It's going to grow and grow and grow in complexity until you have this massively complex matrix of, quote, unquote, not really living things, but, boy, they look like biology. And Richard Dawkins will go and have tea with him again and say, 
I promised you, this is in 2001, I went up to see him in, in Oxford. I probably can't get an appointment with him now. But he said, I'm really interested in this idea of artificial life across the internet. Count me in, I'll look at it. I'll go back to Richard Dawkins and I'll say, open the laptop and say, look at this. As a biologist, he'd say, oh, okay, it's more, more simulated artificial life. But it's really interesting. Oh, look what it's doing. I'm going to study this. I'm a biologist. I see patterns. That, I see the patterns of living things in there. I'm not going to call it a living thing because it's too controversial. But I'm going to study it nonetheless. So that might be an important moment. But think of, think of it this way. How does life get off the Earth? One way is to take the space shuttle or to, to go with uh, Mr. Branson, Sir Branson. <laughs> That's it. The problem is, whether you're going with Sir Richard or NASA or space adventures in Russia, and I know this because I worked with the space agency for 10 years, you get up into orbit. It's lovely. You're in the space station. You're floating around. You need constant resupply. Five more minutes. And it's a very fragile environment. You're basically inside of Isambard Kingdom Brunel's creation. Isambard Kingdom Brunel, as you know here in London, was the great engineer who created the steamships and whatnot. The space shuttle and space station are nothing different than pressure vessels that IKB would have seen and said, oh, that's a pressure vessel. You know, and, and you're going to have problems with those seals. And the space station can't survive for more than a few months without something going wrong. It's a constant maintenance. In order for us to actually live off of the Earth as a species, we need things that aren't hard parts. We need living ships. And in, in, in truth, we can't, as a species, go anywhere that there isn't life already. That's why when you go to Antarctica, everything, every hamburger and every, you know, everything to drink except for the, the frozen ice water is, is moved in by aircraft. It is a completely non-habitable place for humans. It's a lot like the moon would be. So you actually have to, if we're going, as a species or as a planet going to go out from the one bubble we're in, you need to actually engineer and evolve things that can live off the planet. Freeman Dyson called, came up with a thought experiment called, he's at Institute for Advanced Study, he came up with Dyson's trees, these, these things that would be engineered by people but would live on comets, icy objects, all throughout the solar system, because there's lots more surface area on comets and asteroids than there is on planets. If you could evolve things that would live, it'd be like fuzz, it'd be like, like bread fuzz, you know, around comets growing very slowly because it's very cold. If the whole solar system was full of a biota that was from the Earth but evolved to live in space, we could then go out there and say, hello, fuzz, you know, can you give us a little bit of air if we like process a few of them down? And there are our life support system. Because you couldn't have colonized any of the continents without life support systems from biology. So that's that's kind of reaching the end of this non-PowerPoint-enabled stream of consciousness, is that maybe this whole exercise, it's about sort of our fascination with our origins and our future in, in the universe or just plain fun, alchemical fun, but maybe it's a bigger thing that's about life itself trying to Appropriate, and that we are a mechanism, and the technology is a replicator, a, a way to do that. And as, as Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park, life will find a way out. So that's the, and I hope you've been able to follow this to at least some part of it. Um, but that's just kind of a, this will be a basis for my PhD work with Elizabeth and crew over there.
and it will be mainly a, a philosophical work. The situation work. limit to the minimum number of participants. The system may close the conference. The conference. If you wish to that's remain a good, in conference. That's a good sign. The guy in, the guy in biology is, is telling us we're through. So I think we have, uh, we have some... Yeah, thanks very much for thank you. It's not so much a question, it's really a response. I think you're taking on a huge thing with artificial life, trying to say, is this like nature? Because I still have a problem accepting your leap from somebody putting in some parameters into, albeit a very sophisticated machine that can create of its own further beings to say, that's really a a simulation of life that can be close enough to what happens in nature. I feel that's a very big jump. I think it's attractive. I would be willing to play with it and, and participate, but I would still have reservations because the beginning of it is still a set of parameters, I, set of parameters. by ourselves. But what I was wondering is, can one also use this tool for perhaps more modest tasks which have a practical application somewhere, so that rather than taking on life, the universe, creation, one could also say, well, let's test the usability of this in, in a smaller segment of life. I can't think of an example at the moment. It's a fascinating idea, but I'm filled with doubt about the acceptability of matching these ideas. But I completely agree with you that if, if we created a primordial suit, no matter, and the question is if you're putting in the parameters that you're not touching its lights out, it's still artifice. And, but I think, in a sense, it's reaching back far enough that it's becoming interesting. It's interesting artifice. Now, the so that may be just enough. I mean, there's certainly, it, it's as big a thing as I could do in a lifetime, probably won't see it in my lifetime, but some really good examples of this, NASA and some of our projects on going to asteroids, I designed a, a way by which crews could do soft docking on an asteroid, tether down and, and go out on ETAs for potential missions. And um, the, one of the problems they have is building robotics that can move around in low gravity. And I said, we'll take Carlson's creature things and we'll evolve a whole bunch of innovative robotics. Or we'll, we'll model uh, part of the bloodstream and we'll do a huge amount of computing around finding with bad things in the bloodstream and really help people help in medi medicine and medicine. Yes, there's philosophical questions, but there's also, you know, being a, a class person. Um, what can you do when you can grow structures from an architectural perspective? There's a great guy doing work on that architects in Rotterdam. There's growing algorithms for pattern recognition. What kind of patterns? Well, for energy for an oil company, it's growing pattern recognition for looking at identifying faults, salt zones, and other sorts of underground features that are a result of sending sound to the ground. These are very difficult things to do, and it's from a top-down uh, intelligent design, if you will, approach to algorithm development. It doesn't seem to work. Um, if you need to contrast with things like neural nets, uh, or other techniques that have tried to use this, they don't feel somewhat brittle. So I think from a practical perspective, it's finding oil, or something like that. Um, building structures, say building domes or something like that. Um, 
and there's a whole host of other very practical kinds of applications that are quite useful. But there is a, there is the larger issue that if you have demonstrated on a small scale, there's a logical progression of where you're going, which is I think when you join us through private discussion in the podcast, is what we're grappling with, is this idea of the philosophical issues of the work that we're doing. Almost to some extent, like perhaps, which is a bit heuristic, uh, of what maybe people who wouldn't been in the time thought maybe struggled with and ultimately set up the American Federation of Scientists. Rachel. I think the, um, uh, the evolution of what's happening in artificial life is hugely relevant to biology because I think there's a general assumption that we know how biology works. And only since about the year 2000, there have been huge developments in the field of astrobiology where the very nature of life and its origins and exactly what constitutes it has shifted radically. So artificial life environments are hugely useful for testing biological principles of design. Um, and like you were saying, architecture and you drawn from those as well. So, um, yeah, we're, you know, we're only just developing new, uh, new um, techniques in molecular biology to, to look at what these materials actually are and, and how, where they come from and how they might interact, which, which will challenge the dominant theories of, of evolution as we know it now. What, what we um, assume is correct to be natural selection, survivals of the fittest, um, you know, will actually turn out to be, be something, you know, well, uh, some, well, be modified in, in a certain way because of what we're understanding of molecular biology. And Richard Dawkins, when I went to have tea with him in 2001, he said, there are two things I like about the idea. One is I can get at the creationists, because he was even then sort of engaging them. And the second thing is uh, it will really force biology to come up with basic definitions of what do you mean by the components of a living system and the processes of a living system. This will be from a bottom up. It will be tremendously valuable. And consider, there's a way to make this testable. What if your evil grid is running, 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 and things are already, vacuoles are already reproducing, bubbles are making outer bubbles, and oh, that's not very interesting, but the blokes have agreed to continue running it. They're running it, running it, running it. What if, like in Carl Sims' simulation, it's great to have a last name Sims when you make a simulation. <laughs> I kid you not. Uh, what happened with him was when he put all these basic physics in, he found there was a turtle swimming thing came out, and then there's a fish swimming this way, and there was all the basic sort of morphology of, of motion came through. It's almost like they're mathematically winnowed down. What if in the Evo grid, if people are still running the Evo grid, they come up to really sophisticated, these, these uh, bubbles become really sophisticated. There's lots of machinery in them, lots and lots of machinery, and then you start seeing patterns, and you start seeing, oh, that's the, a kind of Golgi apparatus. That's a kind of mitochondria, and but it's different. But you see things converging together, not quite, quite meeting. That's going to be profound, because that's almost like testability. So then you say, oh, this is actually really got something here. What we'll do is we'll go back and we'll have the blokes sign up for another EvoGrid session to run for another 10 years. But we'll, we now understand more of the physics of solution chemistry, and we're going to make it a little better. And then they're going to run it for another decade. And then the big EvoGrid objects that come out are like, that's really close to a paramecium in terms of the basic structure and the forms. Then you're really starting to get something as a tool. If you look at 
the enzymatic pathways in the human body and how you model that. System dynamics is very, very similar to that. So there's the simulation aspect. So from, from, for the BCS, from the perspective of computer programmers, there's a lot to learn from the idea of approaching computer science from more of a biological perspective and actually harnessing the power of evolution and natural selection to effectively grow algorithms rather than focusing our attention on the top down. So for computer scientists who are interested in growing software, embracing this idea can be a very powerful mental model shift that once you've made it, frees you up, so to speak, from having to kind of create the ultimate algorithm. Um, it's just one idea. I think there's a lot of insights that come out of biology. Yeah, maybe one minute. First time I came across artificial intelligence and quick computing about a couple of years ago, almost 10, 15 years ago, when some uh, many professionals in the Leiden Geo Transplant Center came across an algorithm to actually predict if a uh, patient with A&E grows or why depending on the uh, uh, rhythm of breathing, blood pressure, and uh, blood, uh, blood gases, and, also, and so on, and the algorithm around it, that's from there, this was done on easy paid supercomputer, and nowadays you can run those kind of things on little, uh, kind of little uh, G5s from Apple. And if you, and if you look on what's now the dying the health industry, with augmented um, virtual, virtual reality and technical resolution, you can detect from x-rays on CTs, for example, to assess clinicians to see the right kind of image or to uh, build it into an expert system. So the algorithms will grow and will manage new functions. You see new uh, cancers that can new viruses and viruses, And I think that this there's another really interesting thing. I think in the 21st century we're going to look back sort of toward the end of the century and we're going to say the greatest new tool that emerged was our ability to harness the power of evolution. In wet biology, in Craig Venter's synthetic biology, where you're messing around with code at that level, and in software, to do these kinds of things, and it'll it'll permeate all of technology. You know, that's what you're predicating your business on. But we look back, and we'll look back at this period, and we'll think, how on earth did we design things without this? You know, of course, they've got models for buildings where optimal wind. You know, they make holes in skyscrapers so the wind can go through and whatnot. And those are relatively simple, just simulations for optimization. But we'll we'll wonder how on earth. And it it could be that by the end of the 21st century will say, we couldn't have survived at all without harnessing this, because we got into troubles around 2049, because I'm from California and the 49ers and everything. Around 2049, we hit a total disruptive event where the planet decided, you want monsoons? I'll give you monsoons in Mexico. You know, you want droughts? I'll give you droughts in the UK. You screwed with me enough that I'm just going to turn over. And let's see how you deal with this. Because this has happened before with the planet. It's all the, like, oh, let's have some fun. And so as a species, we'll be hit with this. We can't solve the problems fast enough. We're going to need to 
grow wheat in places we couldn't before. We're going to need to actually fabricate food in buildings to make it through this period. If we're going to sustain our, we'll drop a bunch of our population, and then we'll have to do all kinds of things faster and faster and faster as the biosphere gets more and more dynamic, trying to kind of throw us off. We're like, who's putting all this gas in here? You know, quick, melt all those ice caps to sort of suck up the gas. It's, it's like pretty everything's out of balance and heat up and let's try this. Oh, no, there's still the gas is coming and, oh, gee, you know, what are we going to do now? And if, if, if the Earth was a, was a thinking being, but the Earth is adjusting, adjusting, adjusting to us. In two billion years ago, just another last little story, I was in a gold mine in South Africa and it wasn't that I was looking for my next grant support. I was just a tourist. But they took us down about a thousand feet and these are terrifying places. I'll tell you, I don't know how people could work there. They go down five kilometers in these mines now. It's 186 Fahrenheit. Anyway, I'm just wimpy. So they took us down on the tour, and they're coming along, and they're saying, now we're going to demonstrate the, the jackhammer, the most terrifying sound. You're in a tunnel, and they're jackhammering away. You know, this is South Africa. This is not a risk-averse society. <laughs> and so there's pieces of, of, of tunnel coming off, and they're here you go, and I'll take this home. And, and it's all black. It's like got a sort of a shiny sheen to it, and suddenly it goes black on the surface. And they say, ah, it's the gold reef. You know, the gold reef was formed before there was oxygen in the atmosphere. We know this because when you held it up, it went black. And that all the, all the gold is, doesn't have ox, oxidization, all the gold, the stuff. And, that, and it was two billion years ago that the gold reef was set down by inland rivers pouring into this big delta. And all the gold was, was just like Panner's gold. And so what happened between that, that time when the gold was laid down and later was that life in the form of cyanobacteria and stromatolite, mushroom-like things around the continents was pumping pollution into the atmosphere called free oxygen, pumping and pumping and pumping. And it reached this break point where there was mass extinction everywhere. Oxygen diffused into the water, huge mass extinction of very small things in a big crisis. The adaptation was that some of these cells were like, we're surrounded by a toxin. Oxygen will bind to anything. It just completely gums up the works. But I'm a lucky little cell because this morning I ate another little cell that's now around in my tummy, and it was upsetting my tummy, except that it's taken up all that oxygen. So I'm happy. I'm just, I didn't get killed. And that was the beginning of, the, of cells being able to create energy at a huge the ATP cycle, whatnot. You're the expert here. But so that rapid adaptation, it was an accident, caused life not only to survive a very big disjunctive change, but to lead to you. Big things that needed energy and big bodies and stuff wouldn't have been possible without a huge pollution of the atmosphere. We as a species are putting carbon dioxide back in, and some of the species on Earth are goodies like the old days. There used to be a lot more of this stuff around. You know, we're happy. But it's not going to be very happy for, for a lot of species. So again, there will be this disjointed evolution. But we are going to use our intelligence and our tools to probably get through it. And we'll do it at the last minute. You know, this is the way we are. Uh, but maybe Justin's company will build some of the tools that will lead, lead to that solution. But it, I think that the power of evolution, whether or not you believe in it or that God created the Earth, it's a non-issue. We're going to have to use that tool that we see working on a daily basis, I think, to, to survive and thrive as a species and to go outside of our world. Any more questions?
Um, I just wonder if it's going too far to, to wonder whether with the evolution of, of a life, is it then conceivable that within that there could be the evolution of intelligent a life? I think it's a big jump. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe in the singularity and things like that. Unless, unless the, the entire internet creating this group mind of Twitter is creating a singularity out of all of our minds. But I think it, it took so long for intelligence to arise. I think that if, if we end up having an evil grid where all kinds of stuff is going on, it'll be like a just having a biological laboratory alongside. Now, the interesting, one more real magical moment is, say, for instance, the evil grid has gone on fairly long. You've, you've run the evil grid several times to generate your targets the following. To make the mathematical algorithms make a thing that you know you can make in wet chemistry, right? So you, you run and run and run and run and run it, and you say, all these things may be kind of pseudo-life forms, but this one has the right math and the right structure that we can replicate that thing in a bilipid layer. We can use chemistry to do this, and it may be not completely CGA. It may be different, slightly different chemistry, different components, lithium or who knows. And so we actually go into the lab and we fab one of the things. We fab it, and then we put it into solution. And that'll be quite a moment. It's like, walk, baby, walk. You know, Please survive. Everybody's just roaring for it because it's been in the chrysalis. And if the thing actually can, it'll probably you know poop out and explode and fall apart right away. But you keep trying, and maybe you'll get one that is a, it's a replica of the thing that was in the evil grid, and it actually can survive. And the biology of that cell is different. It's just different mechanism. Maybe slightly different. Maybe greatly different. But we're watching the thing swimming along and making a copy, and it's it's not. It's not Terran biology, but is or is it? And to add to this, what I want to say, Craig Mentor is working on artificial life. And I, I showed a slide about the innovators and the early adopters and this tipping point. Craig Mentor was a classic example. He had this thing called the National Institute of Health and the Genome Project, which is this massively funded billion dollar thing. And Craig said, yeah, this is stupid. I can do it a lot quicker in the private industry. And all the academics just that jumped on and said, oh, you, no, 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 you can't do that. Similarly, okay, I believe fundamentally that we've reached this tipping point. And sometimes, the, even the pioneers and the innovators who came up with this stuff, they'll probably hate the people that come along and commercialize it, okay, who actually say, you know what, we can find oil with this. You know what, we can reduce risk with this. So that's where I think we're at with this. Same thing that happened in 1994 with the internet, the invention of the World Wide Web. I was on these advanced HTML listservs where people were talking about, Synergetic, we got it. You know, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And then David Philo, Google, Jets, billionaires. So I, I think that, um, I think we're at that point now where this stuff is commercially viable. It ain't, it, it, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, yes, there's fundamental questions, but you can actually use it to, to actually accomplish things right now next Monday, in a board meeting, actually do real things. I just might want to How are we doing on our... We have one, one more question. Larry, you got it. Well, I'm just going to support your claim that this can be used today for real things. Dirk Helbing, I think Tubingen, is doing uh, studies of uh, vehicular traffic flow with these multi-agent yep. systems. And uh, being able to actually advise governments in order to how to improve their traffic flow, 
Uh, Eric Bonabo yep. Boston has been doing studies of crowd control and uh, with the multi-agent system produced the seemingly non-intuitive until you understand what's going on result that uh, the way to save the most number of people rushing out of a burning building is to put barriers in front of the door. That uh, sounds completely illogical until you realize what it does is it forces the traffic, the people running towards the door to slow down and it organizes the traffic in such a way that more people get out of the room alive. Um, so we're, we're, these tools are being applied today routinely um, and, and, and being very useful. Um, if I can throw in one more tidbit, I would say don't underestimate the power of um, natural selection though. Uh, I'd like to tell us another Carl Sims story, but I don't, I don't want to take up too much time here. Uh, uh, Carl Sims, when doing these critters, also had, uh, I mean, he has a physics engine in there. It has to in order to do the swimming and the walking and so on. And um, he had a, another bug in the program. He told, he, he told you on the, the TV clip about the things that would grow straight up. Well, he had another bug that had a, he has a collision detection algorithm to figure out when one polygon is touching another. And the way the algorithm works, they first interpenetrate, and that's normal and expected. And what your algorithm does is find this out and then push them a little bit apart. But there was a bug that if they interpenetrated by less than the precision with which he was measuring his numbers, he would get a zero in the denominator, and these things would jump all the way to the edge. They tried to go to infinity, and then some boundary condition would kick in, and they would stop at the edge of the world. And these agents, th this really obscure bug in the system. Evolution happily found that the agents started rubbing their own body parts together slowly, slowly, slowly until they just crossed this threshold and then thing they teleport to the edge of the world. And it moved their center of mass a very long ways indeed and so they took over the world. Uh, everyone who has ever done one of these A-Life systems, myself included, can tell you stories how evolution found solutions that you never imagined were in the system at all. Um, and so it, I, I actually think that, in answer to your question, that uh, it will get to intelligence. Uh, I think starting with artificial chemistry is problematic for getting to intelligent behavior anytime soon, just because of the number of levels of organization that have evolved. Uh, but as Chris Langton, the father of the field, said, uh, everyone who does this, you have to write an IOU at some level. Um, and so there are those of us who have decided to write the IOU at a little higher level. That's why I start with nervous systems uh, evolving. And, um, and, and I think that I'm not trying to get to human level intelligence just yet. A computational aplesia is all right, a C-slug is all right. Um, but uh, there's lots of, if you look in the animal cognition literature, there's all this wonderful stuff about sort of amazing abilities of 250,000 neuron fruit flies. Uh, one million neuron bees can learn the difference between, can learn the abstract concept of same versus different. It goes on and on and on. There are great examples throughout invertebrates and vertebrates of a kind of lower level intelligence that I think we can begin to evolve our way up this spectrum of intelligence. And I don't think it's an insurmountable goal. And of course, we all know how fallible human intelligence is, so that as, as it's approaching human intelligence, we should nudge it and be more sensible <laughs> this time. Then, of course, they'll become conscious and sentient and look at, you people are crazy. You know, look at how you operate. We're so much better. Now then we'll have 
have something that's in negotiation at that point. They're be so much better than we are. They won't be able to play poker or, or gamble our mortgages and do, do bubbles and so that we'll become a, we'll become like World of Warcraft to them. It's like these things are so crazy. You can play these games with them and they do all these crazy things you can't predict and, and nobody knows why, but we know why because they're evolved by natu natural selection and chemistry and there was nobody there to nudge them into better behaviors at a certain point. So we'll be in the zoo. Right. <laughs> So I want to issue an open call. If you're interested in this subject, I now know Rachel's passionate about this and has some of the answers, uh, please contact me at bruce at damer.com or just go to damer.com and click on the little envelope or something. Because I'd love to, we're building a community effort around. I'm going to go back to Richard Dawkins, try to get on his tea appointment list, say we're going to build this thing because he was interested in before. Will you put your name to it? it? Won't take much time. We'll come to you in 50 years when we have something to show, and and try to get him on board. But we're getting a lot of people on board who are fascinated from the original Biota conference series and recruiting people to do the thinking. They'll be thinking about algorithms. They'll be thinking about philosophy. Um, various things and out of that community what I'm hoping to do is derive this PhD uh, publication book, this big book, and perhaps even get the project started, although that's probably pretty pretty ambitious for a, a three-year. Just join the conversation, Biota. Biota.org. Biota.org. Drop me an email, this is Justin. If you want to make money out of it, talk to him. If you don't want to make money but spend lots of time, don't worry about it. <laughs> 